Welcome to number two of these three seminars, looking at some of the big ideas and uh, doing that through some of the leading people of the Reformation 500 years ago as we celebrate this anniversary in 2017. Tonight we're looking at John Calvin and the theme of God's glory, what it means to have our hearts and pray that our culture's heart may be set with God at the middle, God at the centre. That's really what God's glory alone is all about, having God at the centre. Um, and let me pray now, and the plan is we've got 45 minutes, so we're, we're going to be pretty quick, and I'm going to um, work out the most helpful things to, to touch on as we go through tonight. But there will be some, a couple of breaks for you to turn and just have a quick discussion where you're sitting, um, partly to help you keep awake at this time on a Sunday night, um, and partly, I think, because we learn a lot of us better that way, don't we? Let's pray first. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you might be the centre of our hearts, our desires, our wills, but also of our thinking and our lives. We thank you um, for the giants of the past on whose shoulders we stand today. We pray that we might learn um, from them, from tonight, John Calvin. But we pray even more that in learning, our lives might be transformed and Christ may be honoured, your glory may be seen. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, two weeks ago I looked at Martin Luther and I just set out there by reminding us that the world of the 16th century was a pretty tough world to be born into. It was not an easy, um, relaxed, happy culture, but actually a, a very conflicted one. There was war all over the place in Europe in those days, but also um, physically a, a dangerous time to be born. Um, health was poor, there was no modern medicine of any kind, no antibiotics. Um, there was a saying in terms of how short children lived in those days, happy is the man who holds his three-year-old son. You weren't expected to live to three. Many people had 12 to 15 children in an attempt at least to, to raise a few that would survive that long. Uh, the diet was, was pretty basic, you know, bread, meat, vegetables when in season. Education was just for the rich, there were no schools physical work, discipline in the family, all very hard. Parents would frequently beat their children for you know, relatively small uh, offences at home. Husbands often beat their wives for small things. Um, the rule of thumb, you know the rule of thumb? Where that saying comes from, it, it, was, it referred to the maximum width of a stick with which it was legal to beat your wife. Extraordinary. That's what the rule of thumb was. Um, up to that thickness and no thick, extraordinary uh, world. The reformers were born into that world, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Um, as you'll see on the, if you've got the handout, I hope, he was born in 1509, John Calvin. Um, but amongst the reformers, and certainly amongst those of his own day, he was an outstanding man. Very intelligent, clear-thinking man. Um, he grew up raised in a Catholic household, a Catholic family, Catholic culture. He went to college in Paris in 1521. His father intended to be a priest to start out with. He thought that was a good, respectable thing for a Catholic son to do. But then discovered that lawyers were better paid. Um, I think it's still true today, probably. And so switched him to training in law. And it was as a trainee lawyer in the late 1520s in Bourges and Orléans that it seems he reached a point of conversion. Um, he describes it in one of his commentaries on the Bible as being a, 
sudden conversion to discover Christ for himself. Um, And he says, I learned to worship God alone, but since reason altogether was unknown to me, God was, since through reason alone, God was altogether unknown to me, I stumbled at the threshold. Talking about his, his kind of Catholic experience. Trying to find God, stumbling at the threshold, because no one would open the way to Christ. Talks about how redemption he heard about in church, he says, could never reach me, because no one explained how it could through Christ's death on the cross, through Christ alone. Um, so there he was, raised in this Catholic background, as we saw last time, where um, the essential um, teaching was that Christ died for us, but we also need to do certain things in order for that redemption to come to us and to be right with God and to be uh, in eternity forgiven by God, going to church, um, performing the sacraments, and there were seven sacraments we talked last time, especially about the sacrament of confession and penance. That was a big part of that. So there he was in this, this Catholic environment, late 1520s, and then suddenly converted to become a Protestant through Christ alone. He never actually went to Bible college, but he became a pastor, uh, really because he was just so intelligent and he had such good teachers. Um, he effectively learned and taught himself in the end. And in 1532, he wrote his first book, which was not a Christian book particularly. It was a commentary on Seneca's Latin book, De Clementia, about mercy, which was a book Seneca wrote to advise Nero, Emperor Nero, to be kind to his citizens and not to oppress them. Um, remember, Cal was only 23 at this point. Here he was translating and writing commentaries on, on an ancient Latin book. He was probably responding, actually, to a challenge that the very leading humanist writer Erasmus put out, who did another commentary on the same book by Seneca to say, you know, could someone do better than me on that? And Calvin rose to it, and most people think he did better, in fact. So a very able scholar, linguist, you know, already fluent in Latin, in Greek, taught himself Hebrew. Um, Then he became a Christian. And within a few years was writing Christian books. So he wrote his first edition of his famous Institutes, only four years later, 1536, having just been converted. And in the meantime, he'd had to flee Paris, because as a young Protestant, um, now beginning to be known as a Protestant teacher and thinker and writer, um, he became a marked man because the Protestant uh, king, the the Catholic king of France, was beginning to persecute Protestants in his kingdom. Um, He fled after a friend of his was arrested for preaching a sermon which criticized some of the practices of the Catholic clergy in Paris, someone called Cop, and Cop fled. Um, and Calvin followed, probably, people think, because he had actually been the one who ghost wrote the sermon that Cop had preached. So he flees Paris for Basel and returns there to his study. And he's reading not just the Bible, he's studying the church, the, the church fathers, the early church leaders, Ambrose, Chrysostom, Tertullian, Augustine, And as I said, he's teaching himself Hebrew in the meantime. So it's an extraordinary mind of Calvin is being used now to get into the ancient texts and get to know them and read them in their own language. At this point, though, his hope for a life in study, in the kind of cloisters of study and intellectual pursuits, is interrupted. 
there was a friend of his called William Farrell, who was a very fiery Protestant preacher. Um, he'd just kind of walk into marketplaces and preach about justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, um, defying the teaching of the Catholic Church of that day. And he'd get beaten up for it, and he'd just kind of pick himself up and go to the next town and do the same again. Very courageous man. Farrell was in Geneva um, when Calvin happened to travel through. He was on the way to Strasbourg, where he wanted to go, um, where there was peace, but he forced to go through Calvin because of a war going on in southern France. Geneva was, in those days, a very significant city. It was on the edge of the border between Switzerland and France, and also the Savoy Republic. It had a very complicated system of governance. There were kind of three different councils, not just our sort of two houses of parliament and the laws, but another one as well. Um, and it was a, a city in kind of frenzy as well. It just voted to become Protestant when Calvin arrived there. But it wasn't convincedly Protestant at all at that stage, as we'll see. And Farrell met Calvin, went to find him in his room that night where he was staying, and said, look, effectively, you cannot leave. You can't go to Strasbourg. We need you here. He said to him, quoting, you are simply, Calvin, following your own wishes. I declare in the name of Almighty God that if you refuse to take part in the Lord's work in this church, God will curse the quiet life that you seek for your studies. A pretty blunt challenge, and Calvin wrote afterwards, I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course. I was so stricken with terror that it, it did not occur to me to continue my journey. So there he is. He's stopped in his tracks in Geneva and stays there to become one of the three pastors, ministers working in Geneva. He began to write Christian books there. He wrote about how to reform the membership of the local church, uh, bringing in, in what we call church discipline, just the idea that Christians should live a public, a public godly Christian life. Um, and if not, then within the church appropriately, um, prayer and conversation should be had to restore that person. It, however, was a very new idea for them and caused uh, unrest in Geneva. And so within a few years, he was immediately banned from preaching in his own pulpit and had to leave Geneva in 1538. Um, he went to Basel and then on to Strasbourg, um, where actually he loved his time there. Um, he met a colleague called Martin Butzer, who was another leading Protestant reformer and, and pastor. Um, and it was there where Calvin, having said that he was happy being single and wanted to continue and focus on his studies and his pastoring, married um, a widow called Idolette whose husband, people think, probably Calvin had helped actually to bring to faith before he died. And uh, you can read more about Idolette. There's a lovely book um, through there on the bookstall about the wives of the reformers. And there's a lovely chapter there about Idolette, his wife, and how their love for each other kind of grew um, from initially being a, not quite a marriage of convenience, but certainly a marriage which Calvin saw her as a helpmeet to him. But she became very much a partner in their love and faith and ministry as well. Um, so a great chapter about her and also obviously about Calvin um, in that book out there. So Calvin was often portrayed, is portrayed as a cold man, um, you know, an academic, rather harsh, but actually he is very human, very warm, deep friendships and a great love for his wife. And 
terrible grief he experienced when she died, and before that, tragically, when their son, their only son, died um, at just a week old. So before we look at some of the themes of Calvin's ministry and, and work, you may have heard of something called Calvinism, which is a, a movement within Protestant thinking and, and theology and churches. Um, and you may even have heard of the five points of Calvinism. We won't go into them now. But just to say on that, Calvinism is not Calvin. Um, the two are, are different. Calvin's theology is not the same as what's called Calvinism. Calvinism, uh, if you like, kind of sprang as one of the roots from Calvin's theology in the generation or two after him. A very influential movement. It, it still is today, with lots of very strong biblical themes within it. But Calvin's theology is not the same as Calvinism. And Calvin, because Calvinism is often portrayed, I think rather unfairly, as, again as a kind of slightly um, intellectual and cold um, discipline, Calvin was a very warm, passionate, and um, Christ-loving person. Um, his motto, Calvin's motto, was, Here, Lord, I present my heart promptly and sincerely. I present my heart promptly and sincerely. And his, his icon, um, which you can see there, um, the, the, the I, the J and C, John Calvin, um, it's actually a hand outstretched holding a heart, and some think it's actually a heart with, with flames, a heart of a flame for God. That's his icon of his, of his desire in life, to have his heart available to God promptly and for God's glory. A heart for God, that's really Calvin's motto. So we're going to look at, uh, very quickly really, at three themes. Um, first quickly, second a little bit more length, and then third very quickly again. Um, that's Geneva in the 16th century, um, a flourishing, thriving place, this strategic position between these three different countries, um, and a place recently converted to Protestantism, but not entirely, um, by any means, across the whole city. So Calvin, um, in his early ministry in Geneva, and then also in Strasbourg, is a writer. So our first theme is this thing of writing, um, Calvin's writing to God's glory, um, employing his intellectual ability and his clarity of mind, his brevity of writing um, in the work he's doing, um, writing books and commentaries and so on. He's writing very much from 1513 and onwards. Um, his institutes we'll come back to in part two. The famous book you may have heard of by John Calvin, his Christian Institutes. Um, but he's also writing commentaries. His commentary on Romans, his first one, came out in 1539. Again, extraordinary that within probably five or six years of conversion, he's writing this still very much respected commentary on the book of Romans. His writing is very unusual for his day. He writes in an elegant style, um, first in French but also in Latin, um, and he had a huge influence actually on French prose, on French writing over the centuries. Not quite like Shakespeare for English, but not unlike that. Um, he writes with clarity and Precision. Those were his things, claritas et brevitas, clear, but also brief. He doesn't go on at great length if a few words will do and will say the same thing elegantly. He despised those who use many words to say things in flowery language that sounded impressive when actually fewer would have done better. Um, he was lecturing in those early years as well. 
Um, he lectured for an hour, three times a week, to college students, um, lecturing from the Bible using the Greek and the Hebrew, the original languages. Many of those were recorded um, by someone taking notes, and many of them are actually in print still today. And then on Fridays, he lectured for local pastors and teachers, a kind of clergy gathering that he taught on Fridays. As I say, he avoided the, the kind of rhetoric, the exaggerated rhetoric of some of the classical writers like Cicero. Um, and even with his contemporary Protestant um, colleagues, the pastors like Luther, he was far, far briefer in his writing than they were. So Luther's commentary on Romans is kind of three volumes. It's a huge, great work. And Galatians is it's kind of that thick. Um, Calvin's is like a fifth of the length. Much more concise um, to read and to work with. His purpose in writing was to use his knowledge um, that he believed was, was increasingly God-given knowledge of the ancient writings, especially the Bible, but also other great Christian leaders before him, to open up truth, to open up the scriptures particularly for his generation. Um, in our language, he's, he's kind of going back to ancient Rome or ancient Greece to open up the gospel for contemporary in his day, Geneva and France. Going back to the ancient books to bring them alive for today. And the great Swiss theologian of the last century, Karl Barth, who was, again, heavily influenced by Calvin, he wrote how energetically Calvin, having first established what stands in the text, the Bible, sets himself to rethink the whole and to wrestle with it until the walls that separate the 16th century from the 1st century, that's the time of the New Testament, become transparent. And Paul, the apostle, speaks and yet the man of the 16th century hears. That's a great gift, to, to bring the Bible alive for today in our language. So here he is using his, his learning of ancient languages, of ancient Christian writings, of the Bible, to show how Protestant teaching was the true faith. Uh, in, the, in the real sense, the Catholic faith, the universal Christian faith, handed on from the Bible through the Apostles. He wrote to a Catholic cardinal debating this point, Sadaletto, um, to criticize the Roman doctrine of salvation through the church and good works. He says uh, to Sadaletto, You know that our agreement with antiquity, meaning Protestant agreement with antiquity, is far greater than yours. Protestant truth, in other words, he's saying, is far more ancient or, or biblically generated than the late medieval Catholic teaching was. So they claim to be Catholic. He's saying, no, we're, we're the real Catholics because we really do teach the Bible properly. He says, we are only seeking to renew that ancient form of the church that was cruelly mangled and almost destroyed by the Roman pontiff and his faction. Now again, forgive the pejorative language, that was the world they lived in. That was the Catholic church that he was writing against. But see what he's saying? He's saying, the Reformation did not start a new church. All it did was unearth and rediscover the true church, the Catholic church of Christ and the apostles. We're not the newbies on the block here. You medieval Catholics are. So that's, that's his first thing, this, this writing for God's glory, using the languages of the ancient writings, using his study of them to unearth gospel Protestant truth for his own generation and then to present it in a way that's, that's readable and usable for church members and pastors.
So I thought just an example, I'd stop there and give you a chance to read a little bit of Calvin. I do recommend, you know, if you want to read some Calvin, get a commentary of his. Often the best way to, to read him, I think, Institutes is rather long and, and difficult to get right through, but get a commentary of his. Here's a, a snippet from one. I've put it on the handouts there. So you'll see the bottom of um, Writing to God's Glory there. There's a quote from Calvin from one of his commentaries on John. And then I've put the verse there, John 3.33, on which he's commenting, what's part of his comment. And then I've put a couple of questions at the bottom there for you to have a think about. So can I just get you to just to turn for you know, just, just three or four minutes? Um, grab a Bible... They're on the seats if you haven't got one with you. Turn to John 3, verse 33. Just see what that says about faith. And then just turn in twos and threes and talk about that question. What is Calvin saying here about what faith is and is not? How different is that from how many of us or many around us think faith is? How does Calvin thereby reserve the glory in our salvation for God alone? So it's all about how faith enables us to know the truth about God. I'll let you read John 3.33 and then turn and just talk about those questions together. Um, so Calvin has commented in that first paragraph I've put there for it's the nature of faith to rest upon God and be established in his word. Is that all right? Over to you. Any questions, just stick a hand up. I'll come and try and help you. So read John 3.33. Read the comment from Calvin at the top and then have a look at the questions. Okay, how are you doing? Do you want me to give another minute or do you want to be put out of your agony? Put out of your agony, a few of you are saying. That is not the easiest verse of the Bible, you'll be pleased to know, because there are lots of easier ones, nor is it the easiest set of questions I've given you, so I apologise. I thought, those are quite tough questions, aren't they? Um, some are the, the kind of area that I hope you are kind of moving into, um, by way of the right answer, if there is one. What is he saying about what faith is and is not? What Calvin is saying here is that that verse is teaching us that faith is a response to God's promises, God's word to us. It's not a feeling I have... Um, and so someone with lots of faith is not someone who has a kind of strong feeling that God's there, but someone that simply has a strong trust in what God has said to me. Um, and the reason that that leads us towards God being the, the kind of person where the glory rests in faith is that, as he says, I'm assenting in faith to what God has said to me. I'm not creating the idea. I'm not inventing it. I'm not making my own faith. I'm responding to the initiative God has made by speaking to me. So all the glory for my faith and my salvation goes to God because he made the promises, he spoke his word, I'm simply receiving it. Does that make sense? That's a very kind of Calvin way of thinking that um, it's all about what God does first in initiating and our role is to respond in faith, in trust. That's the other word he'd use, trust, which is faith. Great. If you're baffled by that, do ask me um, more at the end. But I think we'll, we'll keep moving if you're happy to. So I want to spend a bit of time on this this second theme um, and wrap up quickly with the third one. Um, So what I'll do, I'm going to to run through the second theme quite quickly. Um, I'll then just skip over um, highlights of the third theme about um, Calvin pastoring the church. Um, And then I'll give us a a last few minutes to discuss, again, some some questions I've put on the top of page two, the, the second page. 
in relation to this second theme of thinking to God's glory. So thinking, thinking to or for God's glory, that's the, the second big thing with Calvin. He is almost unmatched in history as a Christian thinker, what we call a theologian. There is almost no one else who has brought together so much biblical truth and organized it so helpfully and clearly and faithfully for the Christian church. Almost no one's done that. Maybe no one else has done that. Um, And the reason he's doing this is not because, as I say, he's a dry academic theologian and it's a dry exercise and theology is boring, but because he sees, he knows that there is a strong connection between right thinking and right living. He really believes that if we can understand the Bible better, we can follow Christ better or even come to Christ more readily. So it's not a dry thing, it's about Christian living. And the Institutes of Christian Religion, as he calls it, um, is his way that he most clearly does that. He brings it all together in one place. So he wrote this first in 1536. Originally he wrote it partly um, because he saw people struggling to understand the Christian faith as young Christians, and he was passionate that they should have an easy way to find Christ, as he puts it. He also wrote it to, <clears throat> to, con- to um, defend the Protestant faith to the King of France, to, to kind of say, look, if you'll just read this, you'll see we're just Orthodox Christians. We're not nutters, not heretics. You shouldn't burn us. We're just Christians. Um, later editions, though, developed. They, they got longer, and he reorganized them, and it became actually really a manual for preachers. Um, he organized it so that any, anyone learning preaching or as a pastor would have a way of kind of having theology in one place, um, so that Calvin says, so that then, in my commentaries, I could be brief. I could just refer you to the institutes for the kind of background theology. So the framework is the institutes, kind of how does it all fit together, how does the Bible make sense, um, the big themes of God and Jesus and the church, and the commentaries is, well, what's that verse say about that? Uh, and that's the way he lays out the institutes. He lays them out like the Apostles' Creed. So if, you, if you've been in church, you'll know the Apostles' Creed. I've even got the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the church, and so on. That's how the, the institutes works. Um, there are four books to it. Um, I did warn you, it's kind of a long book. It's actually four books. Um, and I've put the, the titles of them there at the bottom of the page, page one. The Institutes of Christian Religion. Knowing God and Ourselves, Christ our Redeemer, how to obtain the grace of Christ, that's really you know, the Christian life, um, life in the spirit. And then fourthly, the church. Um, I won't spend long on those because I think it's more helpful for probably you to have a, a, a talk in a minute about some of this stuff. But the, the first theme, knowing God and ourselves, that's about God as our creator. It's about God as Father, Son and Spirit, the Trinity um, that Christians believe in. And his big phrase here was that, that Christian thinking and Christian relationship with God is, is all about... Um, coming from the Father, in the Son, and through the Spirit. And again, that's very biblical language if you read what the Bible says about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. From the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit. Um, so that's how I um, come to faith. That's how I experience God's presence. That's how I experience grace and forgiveness and redemption. That's how I experience transformation of life. From the Father, through the Son, uh, in the Spirit. Uh, in the Son, through the Spirit. The idea of God's glory is here in the Institutes. The chief idea that God had in creating man, creating us, was that we should glorify him. That's why we're here primarily. Not just to enjoy life and enjoy each other, but primarily to glorify God. And that became a big idea in Calvinism later. 
God is constantly working for creation's good and for our good. That's what he calls providence. Um, it just means God, God sees and plans the future for our benefit. Jesus talks about this, doesn't he? That, you know, that the hairs of our head are numbered by God and so on. God is, for Calvin, the, the helmsman of a ship. He's got the, the, the rudder in his hand um, to enable us to cope with every event that life throws at us. Life is a mystery for us, he says, like a labyrinth. But the cross where Jesus dies shows how God can use even evil for his purposes. And therefore, he says, suffering is not a sign of God's wrath upon us, but is a means of his grace to us. He uses everything that happens for our good and his glory. Then he moves on to the second one, Christ the Redeemer. Um, It's kind of straightforward uh, Bible teaching, really, here. Christ became human so that as one of us and as divine, he might redeem us. Um, Christ is not like a a rung on the ladder to God, as the Catholic Church was teaching at that time. You need Christ, but you also need good works and penance and so on. Christ is the ladder, he says. Not a rung, he is the ladder. Um, connecting us to God. His death is the victory over evil and death in which he bore our curse which inherited from Adam and paid the price for our sins. Thirdly, how to obtain the grace of Christ. He says um, the focus should be here not just on how we find God but how we become godly. And the language that they used then was the language of being justified. We saw that last time. Um, made right with God, but also they, they said sanctified. That means literally made holy, um, set aside for God, becoming Christ-like, we might say. And Calvin's very good at emphasizing that, that those two both are part of Christian experience, should be, and both are also inseparable. They go together. It's because I've been justified that I begin to be sanctified. And I cannot be sanctified without having been justified. Faith alone unites me to Christ, and it's because I'm united to Christ. There's that that in Christ thing. It's because I'm in Christ that I begin to experience freedom from sin to live as someone in Christ. That's Romans 6 that he's really unpacking there. Um, So a lovely phrase he uses at one point here about this. He says, of God, in Christ, God offers us all happiness in place of our misery, all wealth in place of our neediness. In him he opens to us the heavenly treasuries that our whole faith may gaze on his beloved son. So this is, this is not cold writing, is it? This is passionate faith. He, says, he goes on to say, our whole hope should be drawn to and rest on Christ. So Christ is not just our redeemer. He's not just our example. He is our true vine, that's Jesus' image, our true vine in whom, in Christ, in whom we participate as branches. It's by being united to Christ, living in Christ, that our life change becomes possible, that we're transformed. Cal was very good on the place of the Old Testament law, by the way. Luther saw the Old Testament law, as we saw, as there to lead us to God, to conviction of sin, that we can't keep it, therefore we need Christ. And again, that's, that's a very 
true biblical idea. But Calvin also recognized the law is there to guide Christian living. Now, the Ten Commandments are there to guide our living um, by showing, as it were, the ideal of what a godly life looks like. We can't do that. We can't live up to it. Only Christ can do that. Only in Christ can we begin to do it. But the law is a powerful sign to us of what loving God looks like or what loving your neighbor looks like. Look at the Ten Commandments, Calvin would say. Some very practical teaching in the Institutes about things like how to be faithful in marriage or how to be honest with our property or with those of others. He's great on prayer. Um, We'll look at prayer uh, in a few minutes, um, the, the kind of last discussion, but he calls prayer the perpetual exercise of faith. Um, He has some simple rules of prayer to do with being reverent, desiring an answer, being humble, being confident. And he ends up with basically a simple outline of the the, um, Lord's Prayer. And the six petitions, the six requests that the Lord's Prayer contains, give us our daily bread and so on. Um, I'm not going to talk about predestination tonight. Calvin did teach predestination both to heaven and to hell. Um, Others later than him I think would probably say he, he would have been helped by putting more Christ into how he unpacked predestination. Um, it's a thorny one. It's a difficult one to get our heads around. It's impossible actually for us, isn't it? But he's always very clear that the reason behind that is that he wants God to be the one who's sovereign. It's not I that am the master of my fate. It's God in the end. It's God that draws us to himself, that gives us faith. And in that sense, it's in Christ that God chooses and predestines us for salvation. And then he finishes with the fourth of the church. And as I said, he sees the, the true church as the one founded on the scriptures. And where the Catholic church of his day saw the true church as, as um, seen in the priest. You want to see what the church is? Look at the priest, they said. Um, and then the kind of radical Protestants, the Anabaptists, they said, look at the tr- true church. You'll recognize them by their lifestyle, by their morality. Calvin said, no, you don't see the true church in the ministers or the morals, but in the ministry, in what the church is doing. He says the true church is recognized by really two things, by being gathered around God's word and by administering, by serving the two sacraments Jesus gave us, baptism and communion. So it's a classic definition of the church for Protestants. Gathered around the word and the sacraments. Not about the priests or the, the morals of the members, but about the ministry, the word, the sacrament. I think I'm going to draw stumps there on that section. There's more we, so much more we could say about Calvin's theology. Um, but if you really want to chase it, then um, get a copy of his Institutes and read it. It's, it's readable. It's just quite lengthy, so do it in chunks. I think I'm going to, I'm going to just wrap up um, what I'm going to say about his last aspect of of working for God's glory, his pastoring on the back page now, and then put you back into groups for five minutes to close. Calvin the pastor, I've said already, he's not a cold man, he's a warm-hearted pastor, Um, and in his pastoral work back in Geneva, he's working again for God's glory. He had a period, as I said, in exile back in Strasbourg and Basel, um, but Geneva asked for him to come back. Um, They recognized the mistake they made in banishing him, and they got him back to be their pastor. Um, And he then spent the rest of his ministry there, the next 13, no, 15 years, um, pastoring the people in Geneva. And 
He did so really against his will. He hadn't found an even easy place to be their pastor. Um, He said, I'd rather be dragged through the bowels of hell than return to that city. But then he says, the welfare of the church lay so near my heart that for its sake I would not have hesitated to lay down my life. He took up preaching his first sermon at the exact Bible verse that he'd preached on um, three years early when he was first banished. As a way of kind of saying, I was always your pastor. I just had a pause, a pause button. So he just carried on. No drama, just, just carried on teaching the Bible. Um, and there he was. He baptized babies. He married people. He administered the church. He preached sermons. Um, his brother, his wife, lived with him in their kind of extended household, him, him and his wife, Idolette. Um, so, you know, kind of big extended family in his house. Always other people staying, pastors visiting, exiles from France being put up and looked after by him. He had very poor health. They often complained about that. And Idolette did a great deal of caring for him. Hemorrhoids, gallstones. Um, his doctor prescribed horse riding for his hemorrhoids. <laughs> which he said just made them worse and, and didn't dislodge the gallstones either. Um, but a very human man. Um, he trained these ministers. He set up a Bible college in Geneva for his last five years there. But many, some like one in three of the ministers he sent back to France were killed as Protestant workers in France. Their families came back to Geneva um, as widows and orphans, and he cared for them. He set up a, um, a, a pastoral care network called the Bourse, which cared for the orphans, the elderly, the widows, the invalids. A very caring man, practical man. He, he set up a Bible college, a school. Um, he laid down... Um, guidelines for Christian living expected of citizens of Geneva so it became this, this kind of Christian republic um, and some of those were enforced rather too strictly by the magistrates there um, but his intention simply been to, to raise levels of Christian living and lifestyle to, to kind of fill the city with good examples of what Christian life looks like and of course to discourage um, poor examples um, he felt that some were disciplining small offences too harshly and excommuting people for you know, really, really not very much. He called that spiritual butchery. So this image of Calvin as a kind of harsh, cruel man who inflicted his discipline on Geneva is really not the real Calvin at all. But there were people around him who were working that way as well as against him. He could be impatient. He wasn't a saint. He could be impatient with those who felt were not taking God's word seriously. As a young man, he could apparently sometimes kind of lose his temper and be brash if, if he kind of didn't get his way in a debate. Um, but as he grew in maturity, he became a very wise pastor, um, a diplomat, a collaborator with other leading reformers like Bootser and uh, Luther, working with other churches too. He was always cautious about the truth as well as passionate. He always felt if the Bible wasn't clear, we should not then um, be fierce or dogmatic on an issue. Don't go beyond what scripture says and makes clear, he says. Um, but above all, he was a preacher. He would preach. And this, you know, as a preacher myself, I don't know how he did this as well as everything he's doing. Five times midweek he would preach um, on every other week. Plus, of course, Sundays. Um, either once or twice on Sundays. So probably like, like 20 sermons a month, something like that. Many of those were, again, written down and kept on paper. Many survive in print today. And as I say, they're pithy. The sermons especially are very kind of blunt and direct and applied to his own setting and and issues. 
Um, the nearest thing Calvin had really to, to propaganda, to get his message out there through the sermons and the printing of them via the printing press. He preached 200 free and very lively sermons on Deuteronomy, believe it or not, and 159 on Job. He also had a passion for worship, for public worship. He arranged for the Psalms to be translated into contemporary French. Again, they'd have been in Latin only before that. And set to music. Um, Like Martin Luther, a big fan of the Psalms sung in church set to music. So that, as he says, rather like Bunyan said, ordinary plowmen could sing them at their work. So that's that's Luther, the, the pastor, just doing the things pastors do, but doing them with, with his extraordinary diligence and intellect and ability. But I just want to finish by um, giving you a chance just to, just to, for the last, yeah, just five minutes, have a think again about one of the things Calvin said about prayer. Um, I've given you there on the top of the back page a quote from the Institutes um, in what he says there about the part of the Lord's Prayer, the hallowed be your name line, um, at the, the second line of the Lord's Prayer. And what he says there is, as the name of God is not duly honored on the earth, it is our duty to make it the subject of our prayers. He's saying, that's why we're told to pray this, because this isn't the reality yet. God's name is not hallowed. We should pray for that. It must be our desire that God receives the honor that's his due. I just thought it'd be interesting to go back into your sort of twos and threes and just talk about those, those two questions there. How does Calvin's concern for God's glory show in what he says there? And what does it mean for us today to pray, hallowed be your name? You could think about, what's that mean, hallowed be your name in Norwich or in this country or in my workplace or in my friendships or in that person's life I'm praying for? What's it mean to pray, hallowed be your name in those situations? Is that clear? Great, so back to you for, let's say, um, four minutes, and then we'll come back together. Um, Time for a couple of questions, and then we're going to pray and close, no later than nine. Over to you. Okay. How did you do that question? Anyone got any questions about the question? No, that's good. I take it you kind of you got at least the direction of the question and where you're going with that. Anyone want to shout out what, what you had for the, the first question there? How does Calvin's concern for God's glory show in what he says about the Hannah be your name? It's not a right or wrong, this one. You're either baffled or intimidated, or watching the clock, perhaps. Okay. Um, I, I'm sure you get the gist of that, that uh, he rightly, I think, sees that hallowed be your name, it's, it's a way of praying that, that God may be known for who he is in the world. That's what hallowed be your name really means. May the world hallow or praise or honor your name. Um, and that's what Jesus says we should pray all the time. It's in the Lord's Prayer, right at the top there. It's the first petition, the first question, the first um, request in the prayer. Um, so it's a great prayer um, for God's glory to be seen and known in my life, in your life, in our friends' lives, in our non-Christian families' lives, in, in the city, in the culture, in the world. Great prayer. Second one, what does it mean um, when we pray, hallowed be your name? That's a more personal one, perhaps. But the direction I'm hoping that it'll get you thinking is, um, 
what can I pray for that non-Christian colleague at work or at college or that sister of mine who's not a Christian? What would it look like for her to honour God's name? Does she need to become a Christian? Or does she need to recognise that God is there at all? Recognise that God's not being honoured in the world or in her life yet? Does she need to see God being honoured somehow through Christians, through church, that she recognises? It's all of that, it's all of that. So God's glory, that's always Calvin's thing, that God's right in the middle, God's in the centre, God's number one. Great. Well, thank you for for having a go, and and, um, I hope it's been helpful to do a bit of work together as well as just listen to me tonight. Calvin's legacy, then. Um, I've put on the sheet there. You could tell me this already, I think. I've, I've said some of this. Christian life, he's not dry. He wants us to know how to know Christ and live in Christ every day as Christians and experience the new life, the transformation, the joy, the prayer that comes from that. That's what he's all about, and that's why he writes his stuff. Shaping society, um, he's had a big influence through the, the Genevan model of sort of democratic rule, separating church and state, especially probably on North America, actually, and, and their kind of systems of, of society. Um, but particularly wanting to see culture shaped by Christian law, um, by Christian truth and grace, um, has a high value upon all of us seeing ourselves as citizens, as called to the work we do day by day, whatever your job is, if you're in work, or whatever you're calling in family, to see ourselves as serving God in doing that. It's a big theme of his, our vocation before God in society. Public worship, shaping that too, I mentioned um, as well as translating psalms and wanting them sung in church and loving hearing that, he also wrote prayer books um, uh, that through people like Bootser, we'll hear about next time, influence our own prayer book. Um, Bootser spent a lot of time, as we'll hear in England, influencing Cranmer as well. So a big influence on public worship and shaping that again around word and sacrament. And then lastly, seeing God's glory as our chief purpose, demonstrating that... um, that's in the Bible, that's why God made us, that's why we're here, that's why he redeems us. It's not simply so that we could, we could be redeemed ourselves and experience God's love, but it's even more than that, that we should become God's people, God's possession, a people for his glory, a people to reflect his glory in the world. The sovereignty of God, the nature of prayer, the purpose of Christian life, all of that, he's directing it towards God all the time. So um, one very influential Church of England writer of the last 50 years, J.I. Packer, um, wrote this about Calvin. I you put it so well, this I think is probably the best way to conclude. So I'll stop after this with a prayer, but then I'll be here at the front. If you want to come ask me questions about him, please do. This is what J.I. Packer says. Such then was John Calvin, the brilliant boy from Noyon, transformed by conversion into a God-centered, God-mastered, God-honoring man, who bowed humbly to God's will and listened humbly to God's word and whose tremendous powers of penetration and insight were put wholly at the service of God and scripture. This was the man whom God could and did use to preserve and grow Protestantism. Shall we pray? And Let's thank God for Calvin. Let's pray for the influence of his faith and his wisdom and his truth, guide us in our faith and in all truth today. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for John Calvin. Thank you for 
preparing him and converting him through faith in Christ and raising him up to be a teacher and a writer, benefiting your people um, all over the world in the centuries since. But thank you even more for the grace to which he points us, um, to the richness of Christian life lived from you as Father in the Son through the Spirit. Experience of your transforming hand and of prayer coming to you as Father and as your children. Thank you for his wisdom, his model of pastor and church working together to live out and share the Christian life. And thank you that his influence in the church today is still strong because he's pointing us always to the eternal truths of Christ and the scriptures which you've given us. So make us strong in faith this week. May we live in the joy of being your children, in the life of Christ. May we experience that burning heart available for your service promptly and fully, just as he did. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming. As I say, any questions, please do come and ask me at the front here now. And look forward to part three to finish our series next week looking at the English Reformation with Tudor refreshments to precede next Sunday night.